Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and today I'm joined by regular co-host Dara Lynn. Hello. And Fox senior reporter Karen Landman. So nice to be with you all. Hi, Dylan. Hi, Dara. So just hours before we taped this on Friday, June 24th, uh, the Supreme Court issued a decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. Obviously, this is a major ruling that will have near immediate effects in some states that already have trigger laws on the books. Those are 13 states that could ban abortion within the next 30 days based on legislation that would trigger bans in the event of a ruling like this. In some of those states, the bans could come even sooner. The governor and attorney general in Missouri, for instance, have have just acted to institute an abortion ban earlier. There's going to be a lot of coverage in the next days and weeks about the decision, much of it here at Vox, about the legal implications and the political fallout that will come. But something we've been thinking about in anticipation of this ruling is the long-term effects it will have on maternal health and maternal mortality. It's almost impossible to talk about the implications of banning abortion without addressing the extremely high rate of maternal mortality in the U.S. The United States has the highest maternal mortality rate among developed countries. And when you look at the disparities among pregnant people in the U.S. alone based on race and income, it paints a very bleak picture. But before we talk about how we compare to other countries, it's important to have a solid understanding of maternal mortality in the U.S., like how it's measured or what counts as a pregnancy-related death. So, Karen, we're really lucky to have you with us today uh, because not only do you write about health and medicine here at Fox and, and have covered some related topics, you are also a literal doctor. So can you help us get a sort of basic understanding of what, what we're talking about when we say maternal mortality? What precisely falls under that rubric? We're talking about deaths related to pregnancy with or delivery of a child. So that means deaths during pregnancy, during delivery, or in the postpartum period. And that period, by CDC definition, is up to a year after delivery. And you might see that defined a little differently by different organizations or institutions, but that's the definition we're going to be using when we talk about this today. There are different kinds of conditions that can cause death during these different periods. So during pregnancy, the most common causes of death are severe bleeding and various heart conditions, like, for example, a heart valve problem that would be exacerbated during a pregnancy leading to death. 
during delivery and in the very early period post-delivery, so sort of in the first six weeks postpartum, infection is the most common cause of death. And then during the rest of the post-delivery period up to a year, heart muscle disease, often cardiomyopathy is the name that you might hear used to describe that kind of heart muscle disease, is a very common cause, followed by mental health conditions like postpartum depression. In the United States, a little bit more than half, about 52% of pregnancy-related deaths actually happen after the baby is delivered. And those tend to be front-loaded. The early postpartum period is higher risk than later, but it is, I think, different from the way a lot of us sort of imagine maternal mortality to be in that you know, it's it's actually the time after a baby is delivered that is highest risk for a birthing person. Another third or so of pregnancy-related deaths happen during the pregnancy itself, and only about 17% of maternal deaths happen around the time of delivery. Those may be the highest profile. You know, a lot of us have heard of Serena Williams, uh, near miss during and around the time of her delivery, and they're often some of the most painful stories to hear because they often involve people who are being supervised in a hospital by healthcare providers who do not attend to their needs. And so they may be more dramatic in some of the stories, but in reality, they comprise a minority of maternal deaths. So kind of having talked through the various phenomena that we're talking about when we talk about maternal mortality— What light does that shed on the fact that the U.S. is such an outlier? Where exactly is that disparity coming from? And how is it that this is a problem that other countries have managed to solve and the U.S. hasn't? So what you're talking about, Dara, is a real difference, a measurable difference between the U.S. and other wealthy countries and how many maternal deaths we see every year. The U.S. data is pretty complicated. We can talk about that a little bit more later if you want. But the upshot is that as recently as 2019, in the United States, we were seeing around 750 pregnant people die of pregnancy-related causes every year. More recently, in 2020, that number jumped up to around 860 pregnant people dying every year. In the Netherlands, Norway, and New Zealand, their rate of deaths among pregnant people is closer to somewhere between one and three women per 100,000. And again, comparing to our rates, which are 17 to 20 per 100,000 lives births, I mean, we're like the six to seven times higher rates in the United States of maternal mortality than in other countries. It's a big difference. Some people may wonder, well, if we're not super confident in our own numbers, if we, if we think there's some variability in our numbers, how can we be sure that it's fair to make this kind of comparison? And I think, you know, that's a reasonable question. But first of all, I want to point out the kind of variance that we're talking about, the, the sort of margin of error that we're talking about is not the kind of scale that would bring us even close to the neighborhood of where other countries are on this metric. So even if we cut our maternal mortality rate in half, we would still have a higher maternal mortality rate than other wealthy countries. Additionally, other kind of associated metrics that would predict maternal mortality are worse in the United States than in other countries. We have fewer midwives and OBGYNs per pregnant person than other wealthy countries. And we do a lot worse of a job of providing, for example, home visits in the post-delivery period. So it's very plausible that we would be seeing increased maternal mortality in the United States compared with other wealthy countries because we just do so much less. 
so you, you mentioned some of the data problems that come with measuring this, and and this is the weeds. So we like to get into some of these <laughs> these uh, questions about how to sort through data on this. What are some of the big complications here? It, it seems like to an outside observer, you just count up people who are pregnant or recently gave birth and and died, and and you get your rate that way. Why is it more complicated than that? Why is it so tricky? I could probably answer this for a long time, but I'm going to try and <laughs> I'm going to try and keep it short. First of all, I don't know if any of you have ever seen a death certificate get completed, but it's generally completed at the time a person dies by whichever doctor happens to be within reach. And that may be somebody who doesn't know the patient very well. It may be somebody who uh, who's in a rush uh, to do some other things. So completing the death certificate should be a very rigorous and careful process. But the reality is that. It sometimes is not. Also, how do you capture on a death certificate that the person who died was pregnant? First of all, you need to know that they were pregnant. And in some cases, a person may not have either been tested for uh, for pregnancy or may not have revealed to their healthcare provider they're pregnant. And so that may just be an unknown in some cases, or it may just be unknown to the provider who's filling out the death certificate. States have tried to improve this under the guidance of the CDC by including a checkbox on death certificates to indicate that the person was pregnant at the time. But there's a lot of variability, first of all, in when states implemented that checkbox. It was really up to up to states to do that, and it wasn't the highest priority for many of them. Once this checkbox was implemented at the state level, uh, there were many errors that researchers found in how the checkbox was checked and, and whether it was checked correctly. Um, they found that there are a lot of uh, women outside the sort of usual range for childbearing, um, sort of 55 and over, for whom that checkbox was checked. So it didn't it didn't seem to make sense and, and seemed to have introduced a lot of error into the process of trying to more accurately gather data about this. So all this to say, it's likely that at points along the path of implementing this effort to try and more accurately understand the magnitude of maternal mortality in the United States, we've both overcounted and at times undercounted maternal deaths. And that's, that's made it really difficult to understand really where we are at times. Because you're talking a little bit about the fact that it's state governments that have been, that, you know, had to take the lead on even just measuring the issue— has that come from any kind of greater interest in some states to actually addressing it? Like, what has been done so far? And is there anywhere that you think has really kind of taken the problem seriously? Like, conversely, where are the places that it's really being ignored and left to fester? A recurring theme that we'll probably talk about today is that states that don't understand where their maternal mortality is, you know, states that don't assess this very carefully are often states that don't really invest in trying to prevent the causes of maternal mortality and sometimes don't really give women the means to prevent pregnancy altogether. California has done a pretty good job of implementing more careful data gathering on maternal deaths. And, you know, not coincidentally, they also do a better job of uh, providing expecting parents with the means to care for a pregnancy, to get prenatal care, and also to care for the children that are the product of these pregnancies. So these priorities align at the state level. And um, and so some the states that often do a better job of gathering data do a better job of providing for uh, parents and, uh, and pregnancies. 
Conversely, states that don't gather these data very well, my state, my home state of Georgia, also does a pretty poor job of helping people prevent pregnancy, helping people care for the products of pregnancy. And um, and so that, I think that just reflects state priorities on a broader scale. And before we shift to an international comparison, I did want to dig in a little bit on some of the disparities in the U.S. that recently Black women pregnant people have been about three to four times the risk of death in pregnancy or around pregnancy as, as white women. Native people, Asian Pacific Islanders have certain increased risks as well. You you pointed out when we were talking about this earlier that this is this is a longstanding thing, obviously, sort of racial disparities in healthcare are, are nothing new in the United States. But what are some of the leading theories you hear about but what might be causing that since it's it's sort of in some ways as shocking a, a discrepancy as the US Europe discrepancy? It is, and it's complicated. It's also extraordinarily longstanding. I mean, since the United States first started gathering data on race and maternal mortality about 100 years ago, black women have been at a higher risk than white women for dying due to a pregnancy. Most recently, that number is three to four times the risk, but it's varied over the years. Also probably worth pointing out that different racial groups tend to have different causes of death. For example, Severe bleeding causes maybe twice as many deaths in Native people and Asian and Pacific Islander people compared with white or black people during a pregnancy. There's also differences in the proportion of deaths caused by cardiomyopathy, that sort of heart muscle weakness that we talked about earlier. Twice the proportion of deaths among black and Native people are caused by cardiomyopathy compared with Hispanic or Latinx people and API people. So that's uh, usually during the postpartum period. But again, there are questions about whether these differences in the causes of maternal mortality that are associated with belonging to a different racial group, whether that's because of environmental factors or genetic factors, but it's worth remarking uh, that the causes may be different. There are huge differences in all kinds of predictors and social determinants of health between racial, between and among racial groups in the United States, as you know very well. So differences in economic stability and what the environment looks like and, and what it portends for people's health, you know, what their housing looks like, what education opportunities are offered to different racial groups in the U.S. Food security is a big part of prenatal health and also of postnatal health for, um, for birthing people. So is the community and social context in which people give birth. You know, do you have a support system? Do you have somebody who can help you if you're unable to breastfeed or get formula? Um, do you have someone to help you manage the stress of caring for a pregnancy or for a new infant? Um, is there violence or trauma in your home? There are huge disparities in all of these spaces between and among racial groups in the United States, and those usually disadvantage people of color, and in particular, black women. There are also big differences in how our healthcare system treats women of color compared with white women. And we know that historically and currently, physicians in particular, but also other healthcare providers, take complaints of pain and other symptoms just less seriously and act on them less urgently. You know, as you may hear from some of the most dramatic stories out there, that plays a big role in determining who gets the care to prevent a minor complication from becoming a death in the event of a, a pregnancy or uh, or delivery. Karen, this gets us at a really useful distinction because I think that because racial inequities persist throughout the healthcare system, 
the fact that this is true at the most general level, right? That like environmental factors create a lot of long-term problems that are going to show up in any specialized area of care. It can be a little bit easy to, to assume that it's all kind of the same fundamental inequities. But you're talking about two different things, right? One is that these are just populations that are more likely to suffer from the kind of long-term health conditions that are going to pose particular problems during Mm -hmm. and immediately after pregnancy. And the phenomenon that you're just talking about now, where even otherwise healthy or at least healthy enough people could develop complications during pregnancy or otherwise unknown health issues could come to light. And at that point, they lack the specialized care necessary to successfully deliver a healthy child and survive it. Do you think that both of these are kind of of equal weight or is one of them a bigger problem in the U.S. than the other in terms of, you know, are we talking about less healthy people getting pregnant or people's health being threatened by pregnancy? Boy, that is a great question. And I'm not sure I have a complete answer for you. But what I can say is that healthcare disparities that disfavor Black people and Black women in particular are unique to the United States. You know, we do worse, measurably worse than other countries in so many ways related to health when it comes to caring for people of color. And a lot of this kind of tracks back to Jim Crow laws that really set the stage for a lot of environmental and educational and food access inequities to exist. So just think about, for example, a pregnant person who lives in a neighborhood where there's lead in the soil outside their house, in the paint on their house, and they have to catch public transportation to get to work because they don't make enough money to own a car. And they also don't live near a good source of food. So they, they have to get food at like a bodega instead of at a, a place that might sell a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables. Okay, so this person is already at risk for a number of things. They're at higher risk for lead poisoning, which can endanger their own development and the development of a, of a developing pregnancy. They are at higher risk for catching an infection on public transportation that could impact the health of their developing pregnancy or themselves. They may have a higher rate of neighborhood violence, you know, than other neighborhoods. So they may be less likely to be out getting physical exercise and certainly less likely to have access to healthy foods. So they may be at higher risk for having diabetes, which puts them at higher risk for a pregnancy complication of the diabetes. And there are others that I'm not even talking about here. You know, Jim Crow and the redlining that followed those laws isolated people educationally as well, sort of forced a lot of Black folks in particular into situations where they didn't have access to schools and educational opportunities that were as good as their white counterparts. So being able to ask the questions and to to even seek health care for symptoms that they have during pregnancy, that may be just a less likely social norm where they're growing up compared with in other neighborhoods. So all of these things compound to lead to a lower state of health for Black folks in the United States, sort of broadly compared with Black folks in other countries. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk a bit more about fixing the problem of high maternal mortality in the U.S. and what the problem could look like now in a world without Roe. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. 
That's why they fight every day to push for common sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for the weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow dot com slash weeds. Welcome back to The Weeds. So far, uh, I've been talking with Dara and Karen about what maternal mortality looks like now in the U.S. But we're going to pivot a little bit and examine the U.S. in a global perspective because there's just a seismic gap between maternal mortality rates in the U.S. and in other developed countries. So, for example, in 2020, our maternal mortality rate measured by deaths per 100,000 live births was 23.8. In 2019, Germany's rate was 3.2, nearly 10 times lower. So why are we so behind and, and what are these other countries doing that results in such better outcomes? So we touched on some things before about better data collection but these are also countries that have very different health systems generally. So when you're looking for culprits for this gap, what jumps out at you? I think the biggest problem is that we just don't insure people in this country. And so even in states where pregnant people have reliable access to public insurance, there's a sense that there's inequity and that people on public insurance may not have as good access to care. And so they just don't pursue it because they think they're going to have to pay for it. So I think that drives some of perhaps the the patient side, maybe less health-seeking behavior. There's also a lot of challenges that even if somebody is doing a great job at seeking care for symptoms or, or just, just general prenatal care, there's a lot that they don't get in the United States that is sort of a given in many other states. Like we have as I mentioned before, the lowest supply of pregnancy care providers than any other high-income country than Canada. So that means that first just finding a place to go get prenatal care and go deliver your baby is a much bigger challenge here than in other countries. And that goes for both rural and urban places. There's this sort of concept of maternity care deserts. And there's a, a, a March of Dimes graphic and a whole website dedicated to this that says that you know, more than 2.2 million women of childbearing age live in these maternity care deserts. One in three of them live in an urban setting. 
And that means that in 2017, about 150,000 babies were born to women living in maternity care deserts. That's a huge number of children being born in a place where it's not totally clear that their parent uh, or parents will will be able to see a doctor in a timely fashion if they um, if they have a postpartum complication. And that's pretty scary. And we're different in that way. We're also the only high-income nation that doesn't routinely cover home visits to uh, newly delivered parents after delivery. So that means a new mother or a new birthing parent who is having trouble feeding their child is exposed to violence or trauma in the home setting. That doesn't get picked up on. And that's that's a big problem. You know, there are some states that do a pretty good job through their public insurance programs of providing these kinds of home visits, which do make a big mark on postpartum health, but we do not do that routinely. And there's no guarantee that anybody in the United States lives in a state that does that well. And we're also the only high-income country that doesn't guarantee paid leave to mothers after childbirth, which means that pretty soon after delivering, a birthing parent may have to go back to work and be under the kind of stress that you're under when you are parenting a newborn who does not let you sleep much at night and trying to make money to feed that newborn and any other members of your family. Cortisol is a the stress hormone that gets released when people are under bad stress and it has toxic effects on health and I'm sure plays a role in driving some of the higher rates of postpartum complication in working mothers in this country. Lower income countries throughout the world see a lot more maternal mortality than the United States does, certainly more than other wealthy countries do. And it's it's worth pointing that out here as well. But the United States should be doing a lot better than we are for the amount of money that we spend on healthcare delivery here. So to a certain extent, we're talking about what in the U.S. context would be federal problems, right? Obviously, the extent to which we are willing to let adults go uninsured as a society has been kind of fought at the federal level and then with states either expanding or attempting to you know, refuse federal funding for Medicaid. Paid leave, obviously, is something that has also been talked about as an issue that Congress could address, even though states can also make their own laws on this sort of thing. But some of the stuff you're talking about, you know, which is probably tinkering around the edges in terms of the extent to which it contributes, but stuff like home visits, for example, would be kind of squarely in the realm of state law and policy and where a state that took this problem seriously could kind of grab it by the horns. I feel a little bit like a chump for asking this because the kind of trends on Medicaid, for example, indicate pretty strongly that Republican-led states are less likely to invest in this kind of, you know, to, to invest in this as a priority of government. And at the same time, these have been the states that have been, you know, restricting abortion even before today's decision. But has there been any effort in states either hand in hand with abortion restrictions or as an independent effort to really kind of tackle this problem by doing what can be done without congressional intervention? You can't really use just spending on maternal welfare as your metric here because a lot of red states will say, yeah, we spend a lot of money on pregnancy care and on on maternal welfare. But where they're spending it is on things like preventing pregnancy, for example, through abstinence-only education programs or strengthening marriage programs to you know, strengthen families that are programmatic investments, but they're not cash in hand for the families that, you know, that need it to care for the product of a pregnancy that they weren't able to end, you know, on their own terms. So the same states that often focus on 
preventing pregnancy through avoiding premarital sex, for example. They're also the same states that are more likely to reduce welfare access where it's needed most. For example, you know, Dylan Scott has written about um, family caps, which deny families who are receiving government assistance from receiving additional government assistance if they have another child, which you would think would make a lot of sense. If you're going to restrict abortion, then you should be pretty excited about funding families to care for the children that are added to their families as a consequence of that policy. But, you know, the states that have these kinds of laws on the books, most of them are concentrated in the South, and most of them are also among the states that have trigger laws that will, you know, that will and are already making abortion illegal in those states. So you can sense sort of an ideological alignment here of laws in states that are restricting access to abortion and also not really doing much to invest in families that are living in poverty and adding children to those families. So you're not a chump for asking this. I think these are trends that we need to kind of identify and talk about what they reflect ideologically. I guess the kind of follow-up to that then is, even though there are policy decisions, you know, obviously like abortion restrictions, for example, can't really be, you can't really create a civil society equivalent. Although, of course, there is going to be a certain amount of like interstate organizing in terms of making sure that women in states that have abortion restrictions have greater access to states where they can get abortions. But in terms of investment, this is also something that in theory you could see civil societarian investment in. Obviously, some of the kind of networks that have been endorsing abortion restrictions hand in hand with a culture of life, some of them do a better job than others in terms of actually providing, you know, support to birthing people right now. But would that actually improve the problem? Or are we really talking about a choice that a government, whether federal or state, needs to make to prioritize maternal health? You know, I... I don't really know what the extent of these organizations' impact are. And sure, you can imagine that, you know, in a, a community-based organization that, for example, organizes home visits and, and funds those home visits, that, that, that they're having some impact on maternal health. But you need a much bigger investment to see the kind of impacts we see. Because as we talked about, there are so many inputs into maternal health, and you cannot fix all of those on an individual or even really on a community basis in a way that equitably distributes gains. You also need changes in healthcare that cannot be managed by people, by individuals or by even the best community-based organizations. You know, the way bias is baked into healthcare right now and the way hospitals are disincentivized from, you know, investing in postpartum care those are, those are just not problems that individuals or communities can solve without a much larger investment from above. One, one thing you, you mentioned in our conversations about this, Karen, that I did want to emphasize, and, and not as a to downplay in any way the problem the U.S. has, but the way we phrase this problem is often that maternal mortality is worse in the U.S. than in other developed countries. And that's meaningful. I mean, I think the U.S. having lower maternal mortality than Malawi is not anything to brag about, uh, given how wealthy we are and, and how similarly wealthy countries like France or, or Canada or Germany do on this. But it does seem important to underline that most of the world does not live in developed countries. Most of the world's population is in low and middle income countries. And the problem can be much more severe there. Um, 
can you talk a little bit about sort of the scale of the problem there and, and what, if anything, we can learn from that in thinking about the U.S. problem? The number of maternal deaths that we see in a year are what the rest of the world sees in a day. I mean, we're talking about multiple orders of magnitude of difference in what we see. At least we can say we have some kind of an expectation in this country that there will be prenatal care available to every birthing person, that there will be a place where you can deliver in a safe manner. But there are so many other countries where that is not a given, where birthing happens routinely in the home because there's no expectation that there would be enough healthcare providers or healthcare facilities, you know, where people have to travel at least as far and often much further to reach a health facility from where they live in order to give birth. But they also do not have access to a vehicle or anybody who does have access to a vehicle. So they're walking or they're being pushed on a cart. So we just need to remember that even though we do have an enormous problem and we should be doing a whole lot better, and we made this problem by instituting and refusing to contend with racist policies decades and even centuries ago, we definitely need to acknowledge how much worse the U.S. is than you know, its sort of counterparts among industrialized countries. But we also should be mindful of how much more we have to work with than so many other places in the world do. And, and I mean, if you even just count the number of OBGYNs and midwives we have in this country, there are some countries where you have just a handful of doctors and everything else just gets done by, by folks in community settings. And in some ways, that may be helpful, but there are many ways in which that makes it really, really difficult to contend with complications. And with that, you know, now that we're taking more of a comparative lens, let's take a break and talk a little bit about our white paper for the week, which is about the relationship between women's political representation and maternal mortality. Wow. A, a rare Dara kicked a break, but I love it. All right. I mean, I'm, I, I figured that's where we were going, right? That was absolutely where we were going. Support for The Weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. All right, we're back. We've made it to our white paper of the week, which is called Maternal Mortality and Women's Political Power. It's by Sonia Balotra, 
Damian Clark, Joseph Gomez, and Athene Venkatranami. So the paper is about legislative quotas, uh, which are rules that set aside seats in parliament or legislatures for women or that can require a set share of seats be held by women. Um, for instance, there are some countries that have what's called party list voting, where you vote for a party rather than an individual. And, and so the quotas in those countries typically involve requiring the party set aside some share of seats to be, be held by women. So this is obviously not a policy in the U.S. Um, I think if any state tried to make it a policy, the Supreme Court would strike it down. But it's pretty common internationally, and it's become increasingly common in low-income countries in Africa and South America, as the authors document. And the point of the paper is to try to estimate how these rules, which increase women's representation in politics and, and at least theoretically increase women's power in politics, affect maternal mortality. So the authors find a pretty large effect here. Uh, they find that the presence of quotas is associated with an 8 to 12% reduction in maternal mortality. And the obvious question to ask there is, is it the quotas or is it something else that's causing the quotas? How do we know that, that it's actually the quotas and, and political power doing this? They, they do some, some clever robustness checks and find that these quotas were sort of surprisingly not preceded by upticks in general support for women's rights. And that makes sense in, in some particular contexts. Like one of the countries is Afghanistan. They adopted that policy because they were invaded by the United States, uh, not because of a sort of organic change in, in public sentiment. But they also find some, some mechanisms that sort of could explain how having more women in parliament translates to lower maternal mortality. So women in countries with quotas, they find, have more years of education. They're likelier to have medical staff at their births as opposed to sort of going it alone with, without someone to help if you have preeclampsia or, or birth complications or other things where you need medical staff. They're likelier to receive care before birth, sort of the prenatal period. And they also find that fertility in general is lower. Um, and so it, it might be that women are having children more when they feel prepared for it and, and it will be healthy for them as opposed to sort of being forced into to pregnancies that, that might turn out to be lethal. So, Dara, you and I have read a lot of studies like this over the years in the white paper segment. Um, and as I mentioned, they, they do some work to try to establish that it's actually the quotas doing this and not some other things. But this isn't like a randomized study. This is sort of trying to do the best you can based on real stuff in the world. How convincing was it to you? Do you, do you sort of buy that the quotas themselves are, are causing this effect? I think so. But honestly, what is wild to me is that it's not like there are a couple of policy avenues that you would think would be the kind of proximate causes here, right? Like if you have more women in your government, they're going to increase the amount of funding that goes to, you know, maternal health. Like that is not necessarily the dynamic the authors found, nor did they find that this is about, you know, more permissive laws that would provide for safer abortions and therefore reduce maternal mortality through that avenue. So essentially what we're talking about are a couple of things, things like higher age of childbirth and lower overall fertility that are obviously going to reduce the number of maternal deaths, both because fewer people are getting pregnant and giving birth and because that means that there's more uh, available infrastructure to people who do. But also just a matter of efficiency of and, and effectiveness of policy delivery, which seems like an awfully small bore and like 
almost gender essentialist. Like toward the end of the paper, there's some talk about how, you know, there's evidence that women legislators are building consensus for their preferred policies. And like, it sounds uncomfortably close to the business bookie diversity is good because women and men have different strengths kind of talk. But it is also appealing just with what we were talking about earlier in the episode and the blind spots that exist when we talk about the basic care and diagnostics of people who aren't, you know, men and especially white men, certainly. Um, And just in terms of what the medical establishment understands about what their health looks like and when they might be in distress. And so it actually does make a certain amount of sense that women legislators might be more attuned to policy tweaks or obvious blind spots that are going to result in problems getting recognized and dealt with effectively or, you know, meeting birthing parents where they are instead of just kind of assuming that wherever you're putting the clinic is going to naturally attract the right people. So I do find it a plausible mechanism. What I think I have a little more trouble with is just like, how much can we assume that that is going to kind of cause greater maternal education and all of the other, the suite of improved outcomes for women that the authors find doesn't necessarily stem from a broader commitment to women's rights. Like, where's that coming from if it's coterminous with political representation, but there's not some big upswelling of feminism in the developing world? Yeah. It also, like, the 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 thing you're always trying to do in papers like this is control for unobservables. And changes in societal mores and things are, like, the hardest to observe unobservable. Um, you can use polls and things, but like there's a there's something happening here, and it's not exactly clear problem that that arises often when sort of the, the thing that could be causing both the intervention and the outcome is is just sort of social or cultural. I think the mechanisms were were somewhat persuasive to me, but also could be the other thing that that it could be that there was more women's education and there was sort of greater access to sort of healthcare for for people in pregnancy because of some underlying changes in society that that then got picked up in, in parliament as well. All that being said, I, I was impressed by the number of robustness checks they did. Yes. Um, there's a, a careful and a lazy way to write this paper, and I've read both, and this is the careful and, and rigorous way. Karen, you're less of a, a, an econ person, more of a medical person. Does just sort of the overall story this is telling makes sense to you, um, apart from sort of the, the ins and outs of the methodology here? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard not to think about how <laughs> how including women in decisions about reproductive health generally leads to decisions that favor women's health. Like, even if you just look at the history of abortions legality in the United States, and, you know, I know we're talking in this white paper about all sorts of outcomes related to women's health and not just focusing on abortion, but, like, you know, abortion was legal until white dudes got involved, specifically white male doctors, right? It was previously in the hands of women, mostly midwives, and it was something, you know, people did not trumpet it from the rooftops that they had had abortions, but it was accessible. It was legal. People knew where to find them. And it was relatively affordable. And then, you know, it's sort of the push to criminalize it and to medicalize it came from men. So it's hard to imagine how this would not be true. You know, when you have uh, people who know what the actual 
foundational impact is of having a child that you cannot afford or having, um, you know, any kind of a barrier to accessing health that you can dismantle. When you have people who understand the impact of that in the positions of power, in the seats of power to actually make changes about that, it's just going to happen at a different rate and and with a different set of nuances that that just, I think, will not be there when you have people who just don't understand what it means to have these policies in place. Yeah, I mean, I think that honestly, like hearing us all talk about it, it is totally plausible that a lot of the more complicated support for women in society versus how much of this is the legislative quota system, like there really may be something to be said for just the power of representation and role modeling here, right? That like girls seeing women as their elected representatives, some number of girls on the margin is going to care more about their education because they know that's a career possibility. And that's going to have all of these other downstream effects. And Dylan, that's exactly the sort of thing that you're talking about is like absolutely impossible to measure. But like, it's not an implausible story. And to the extent that it is a plausible story, frankly, having legislative quotas is a pretty straightforward policy way to get there, right? It's not very expensive. It's the kind of bright line fairly easy rule that isn't going to take a whole lot of nuance and litigation and expertise to implement across the board. And this is where it gets really interesting, you know, Dylan, uh, you mentioning, of course, on the one hand, if we tried this in the US, the Supreme Court would strike it down immediately. And on the other hand, that like some of the countries that have had this, that have put this system in place, it's been because the American government was either directly or indirectly helping write their constitution. And like there is a point that's been made, you know, as we've talked kind of as a society about the role of the Supreme Court over the last several months, that like this is not an uncommon phenomenon that the U.S. often, when it's doing constitutional advising in other countries, will advocate for a totally different system than the one the U.S. itself has because the U.S. system was designed in the 18th century and people may have learned some things about government since then. Um, but it is worth thinking about as a, I wouldn't say like equality hack, because that's a really, really dumb and facile way to put it. But it is worth considering that this is something that, you know, we're looking at in terms of maternal mortality because that's relatively easily measurable, but that this is a clear rule that is having a ton of effects in terms of the improved outcomes for women in countries where the U.S. and, and you know, more importantly, political elites in the country themselves have decided that this is a goal they want to pursue. Yeah, and I think sort of in a U.S. context, my takeaway was less should we pass this policy and more voters have a choice in this, that they in primaries and general elections get to choose between teen male and female candidates and you can use whatever judgment you want. And I don't think it's a determinative factor. Like if, if the choice is between sort of a male and female candidate and the female candidate just fundamentally disagrees with you on every issue that's important to you. Um, I don't know that the, the effect sizes here are, are going to, to change your mind, but it does sort of argue for erring on the side of increasing women's political representation and political power when you don't have much else to distinguish, which as a, a DC voter is often the position I find myself in. And yeah, the authors are clear that it's less about the specific thing and it's more about the, the broader project of increasing women's political power. But 
that, I think we're going to wrap up. Um, so thank you so much to, to Darlin and especially to Karen Landman for joining the panel today. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. We will actually not be in your feeds next week. Fox Audio is taking a well-deserved vacation, if I do say so myself. But we will see you in two weeks. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.